the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It seems we've moved into the reassurance phase of the fight against gangs and guns. Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders announced the $4.5 million project Community Space, which began on Thursday. The chief says there will be additional layers to the Guns and Gangs Task Force, including visible officers and plain clothes officers. Joining Libby Snymer to discuss trauma and grief therapist Reverend Sky Starr, security expert and former police officer Ross McLean and former police officer and Toronto City Councillor John Burnside. My big complaint is why is it taken so long? Last year when we had a rash of or an uptick in homicides, uh, we discussed this at City Council. The chief was there and everyone was focused on the number of deaths. And it, it was apparently an anomaly since the year of the gun in 2005. But I looked at the data and I made the point that the number of shootings, which are the real indication of gun violence, whether someone's a good shot or, or not is not the indication of violence. It's the number of shootings has been steadily increasing since 2005. And, you know, you look at this this um, action plan, monitoring of bail compliance. The city lost its mind when someone was out on, uh, you know, a day pass from Cam H and, you know, got on a plane. But we have how many people on bail and apparently they're not even being monitored. And so, like, this is some brilliant idea. Like, that said, I'm a big fan of the chief, and in many ways, his hands are tied. But I just figure, I just feel that this is really um, so reactionary. It's like, where is the proactiveness of our politicians and our police service? Ross? Well, John always makes interesting points, and I don't disagree with anything on John's points, except I'll, I'll take a slightly different angle looking at it. I actually see this as finally we're getting to start doing something good here, and I absolutely agree that this is something that should have been started a long time ago. Uh, and, you know, the numbers of police officers that were down and the ability to go after these uh, gangsters has just been, it's been non-existent since about 2013. Uh, so I think what you're going to see happen here, if I'm reading the chief correctly, is they're going to be going out there using more people out of uniform to be doing more of this bail and parole compliance. Because, and I think John knows this, uh, most people don't know it, we've got so many people out on bail and parole that are violent in the GTA area. And there's not nearly enough people to even check on them or keep tabs on them. So I think they're going to go around and keep closer eyes on some of these people and start locking them up if they've got some decent uh, bail conditions against them. Are there consequences? If somebody skips bail, uh, does the person putting up the surety always pay up? Uh, my understanding is, my understanding, and I stand to be corrected on this, is that almost never takes place. That never happens. That's my understanding. However, someone with the courts could speak to that as to how many hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars they're collecting for that. I don't think you're going to find that's at all the case. That's my anecdotal uh, thoughts on that. Okay. Well, yeah, and I was just going to add uh, to Ross's point, when I was on the, the police service for the 10 years that I was there, that was sort of the big joke is that no one ever had to cough up the money. Uh, but to Ross's point, 
I'm not an expert on that. I don't have the statistics, but that was sort of the running joke when we were at court that those uh, those sureties and, and and whatnot were were ultimately fairly meaningless. Right now, I want to bring in Reverend Sky Starr, a grief therapist and trauma specialist, and she's the founder and executive director of Out of Bounds, which provides groups and services in communities affected by violence. What do you think is the right thing to be doing? <laughs> well, of course, we have to look at, I would think it's, it's appropriate to look at, like tougher laws, for instance, also even on people who have, um, have, uh, have lost their lives. When, when somebody goes to prison, they come out in about eight years, six years, depending on whatever they're given. I understand the Constitution is there, but compared to a life that is lost, and then that person comes out and still have their life, and they're able to have a family. I'm just coming from seeing a mother right now who's complaining about the same thing. So tougher laws, yes, but they also need to be looking at victims and survivors of crime. There's no support for them yet. Did the chief mention anything about um, getting community involved in what they're doing? All the funds I'm hearing that's being handed out is going to the police to put more police into, into the communities, yes. But what about deterring people from that? What about looking at the systemic issues that's creating the problems? What about all of those things? Well, they, they are certainly talking about that, but not with anything specific. Or it's been, They've been talking about it for years, nothing specific. Even Mayor Tory mentioned before the election, this was one, one of his campaign promises, that he would have things in place for the youth. He will set Something's up to the talk on violence. Nothing has happened yet. Trauma and grief therapist Reverend Sky Starr, security expert and former police officer Ross McLean, and former police officer and Toronto City Councilor John Burnside. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Flights in and out of Hong Kong resumed on Wednesday after two days of mass demonstrations. And because of the upheaval there, the Canadian government issued an updated travel advisory telling Canadians to exercise a high degree of caution in Hong Kong. The Chinese military has been massing on the border. And Foreign Affairs Minister Christian Freeland says Canadians in Hong Kong should contact the Canadian consulate there if they need assistance. About 300,000 Canadians live in Hong Kong. This was a hot-button topic on Fight Back this past Wednesday when Libby spoke with Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China, Matthew Bradley, Regional Security Director at International SOS and former CIA agent, and Charles Burton, Associate Professor of Political Science at Brock University. Certainly the people in Hong Kong feel betrayed by the joint declaration that formed the basis for Britain transferring Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty in 1997, and that um, it would be Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong. China is not, um, particularly since Xi Jinping, the current president, came into power in 2012, China has been gradually um, uh, infringing on these uh, guarantees. And then, as you say, they brought in this extradition um, proposal, which would have allowed the government of the People's Republic of China to request to Hong Kong that any Hong Kong, uh, any person in Hong Kong, could be sent to the United uh, to China to face um, Chinese justice, which you know is highly politicized, um, pervasive use of torture and interrogation, more application of the death penalty than all the other countries of the world combined, and so that would have put the pay to Hong Kong's judicial independence. So, I think these demonstrators are 
are um, angry, feel betrayed by China and the international community, and are not going to be giving up uh, because this is really their last stand to maintain the free and democratic culture of Cantonese Hong Kong that they um, that they call home. Matthew Bradley, what's your take on this? Well, we have three key messages of advice. This is the important thing for people who are planning to go there, to be flexible with their itinerary. Uh, travel can continue, that's our advice, but they have to be flexible about your itinerary. Uh, make sure that the reason why you went there, whether it's business or pleasure, is still possible. Uh, we always uh, advise people to avoid all demonstrations. If a demonstration starts where you are, then leave the area. If it if you can't leave the area, then we advise people to seek shelter away from the demonstration. And then finally, expect further protests. Uh, we can uh, expect that uh, things will continue over the weekend, uh, probably in larger numbers. And so we can uh, expect people to need to be flexible over the coming days. I'd like to bring in Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. I don't see how this gets resolved in any kind of peaceful way. What What is your view? Uh, I, I don't see it either. Uh, we are playing into a long game that China has right now. Uh, China can sit and wait. They don't want to lose face. Uh, and then as Charles mentioned, uh, we are fraught with uh, basically what's happening, uh, what happened 30 years ago. Uh, very similar eerie similarity between what happened in Tiananmen Square and what's going to happen or may happen in Hong Kong. So um, it basically is a fairly uh, peaceful protest that has been crushed by military power uh, sent in at this time will be sent in from China. And this is something that uh, I fear will happen. Certainly, I'm not denying there are, there are, there are violent elements in, in, in that, but they are no long no different from uh, regular vandalism. It doesn't certainly does not um, bring up to the to the uh, level of uh, being a riot. Charles Burton, where do you think this goes from here? Well, it's not looking at all good. The Chinese government refuses to acknowledge the legitimacy of the protesters' concerns. There seems to be no mood uh, in Beijing to be conciliatory or try and respond to some of the protesters' demands to tamp down the, the tensions. I, I'm not optimistic about a peaceful resolution. I'm not optimistic that the protesters will simply withdraw, as they did in 2014 after 79 days. And I'm thinking that the, the Chinese regime's method of dealing with dissent is to suppress it through violence. And despite the enormous cost to Hong Kong that this would incur, this may be um, uh, the path that they will take, which will have devastating consequences all around. Charles Burton, Associate Professor of Political Science at Brock University, Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China, and Matthew Bradley, Regional Security Director at International SOS and former CIA agent. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. These are the most damning findings ever from an ethics commissioner against a sitting prime minister. Mario Dion's report on the SNC-Lavalin affair found Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in violation of the Conflict of Interest Act for the second time, two years after he was criticized for taking a Christmas vacation on an island in the Bahamas owned by the Aga Khan. 
This time, the Prime Minister pressured then-Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould to give the engineering giant a deferred prosecution agreement. And this report has new details on the close relationship between SNC-Lavalin and the Prime Minister's office. And it shows the Prime Minister as a calculating political operator, distinctly different from his sunny ways persona. For his part, Prime Minister Trudeau is refusing to apologize for what he calls standing up for Canadian jobs, communities, and citizens. But he also says he's taking full responsibility for what happened. During a special edition of Fight Back on Thursday, Libby Snymer was joined by federal NDP justice critic Tracy Ramsey, Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, liberal Pat Gossage, chairman of Media Profile and former press secretary to the first Prime Minister Trudeau, Peter McKay, partner at Baker and McKenzie and former conservative minister of justice and attorney general, and Lisa Raitt, deputy leader of the opposition conservatives. What we've heard from the prime minister is, well, yeah, I uh, I tried to get rid of this story and weasel out of it in the spring. Guess it didn't work. You caught me, but I don't care. I mean, that's exactly what we're hearing from the prime minister today. Yep, you caught me, but so what? What are you going to do about it? So I guess what we ask for first and foremost is to have a, a proper vetting of it through an RCMP investigation, and they are looking at it because I think it's important to make sure that the obstruction of justice that was alluded to in this report isn't something that is actually actionable under the criminal code. There's going to be lots of opinions on it, but it makes sense that the RCMP take a look at it. There's so much information and that's independent and unbiased from the ethics commissioner that just presents all the facts for Canadians to see that they're going to, they're going to want to have a chat about it because do you really want to have a leader who's running your country who says, oh yeah, you caught me. Um, I don't care. Move along. We are going to bring in a couple of other voices. We've got Peter McKay, who's a partner at Baker and McKenzie and former conservative minister of justice and attorney general and Pat Gossage, liberal Pat Gossage, who is the chairman of media profile and former press secretary to the first prime minister Trudeau. Pat, what's the damage? We had a break actually in the fact that the, this report came out, you know, 60 days or whatever before the election and not a month before, which would have been really devastating. And I guess the question is, can the opposition sustain this line of criticism of Trudeau? It's very complicated, and I'd be anxious for Peter to talk about, you know, how deeply this resonates with the average Canadian. That's really the question. Okay, Peter, talk about uh, that and other things. Were you surprised by how strongly it, it condemned the Prime Minister? The problem, of course, for Canadians is it raises cynicism to whole new levels because when you see your, your Prime Minister standing before the cameras as he did yesterday, accepting responsibilities, but in the same breath, saying, well, I kind of dispute some of the findings. I'm not really going to take responsibility. That flies in the face, uh, again, of promises of uh, new accountability, transparency, openness with Canadians, doing things differently. Well, differently, I guess, in this case, means worse. I would also like to bring in Duff Conacher, the co-founder of Democracy Watch. What is your reaction to this? Well, the Ethics Commission was right to find the Prime Minister guilty. Um, essentially, the ruling agrees with exactly what Democracy Watch set out in the complaint it filed last February. 
about the situation. Unfortunately, though, the Ethics Commission was wrong to let the others in the PMO, the Prime Minister's Office, off the hook and other government officials. They all did the same thing Trudeau did, and they should all have been found guilty. And that's why Democracy Watch is considering a court challenge of that part of the Ethics Commissioner's ruling. Violating the most imp- one of the most important laws for protecting our democracy? No, no, we shouldn't have any penalty except a ruling finding us guilty. And that's part of what makes this law a sad joke. It's full of loopholes. The penalties are, are zero. And uh, the enforcement by the ethics commissioners in the past has been very weak and, and continues to have problems. I would like to bring in one more voice from the NDP, Tracy Ramsey, who is also uh, the justice critic. What is your reaction to this? Yeah, I mean, this level of corruption where a corporation is going to a prime minister or a political party, the government in this case, and asking them to custom make legislation so they can get out of fraud uh, charges uh, is just simply unacceptable. And not only then that they're able to achieve this uh, through some type of, you know, Trojan horse omnibus bill, which is another thing that I think we really should look seriously at, um, because it's not the first time that the Liberals or previous Conservatives would kind of tuck away these very serious things into large omnibus bills and, and not have a proper debate about them. Um, but then, you know, he puts this legislation in place on behalf of SNC and then turns around and lets it go through the process. Of course, they're the first ones to line up uh, to access this new piece of legislation that they've essentially written, uh, and they're turned down. This is definitely uh, a bombshell, and it really is uh, very disappointing for Canadians on the whole to know that our government, that the Liberals, the Prime Minister, felt quite comfortable going and breaking the law by pressuring and trying to influence our Attorney General. Our special panel to react to the Ethics Commissioner's report, federal NDP justice critic Tracy Ramsey, Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, liberal Pat Gossage, chairman of Media Profile and former press secretary to the first Prime Minister Trudeau, Peter McKay, partner at Baker and McKenzie and former Conservative Minister of Justice and Attorney General, and Lisa Raitt, deputy leader of the federal Conservatives. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. There is a new candidate in the race to lead the Ontario Liberals, who no longer have official party status at Queen's Park. Former Education Minister MPP Mitzi Hunter has entered the race. She is one of only seven Liberals to retain their seats after last year's provincial election. Mitzi Hunter joined Libby on Thursday. We know that Ontario is changing in a a very rapidly changing world when we look at the disruptions of technology, um, different uh, requirements for for workplaces, all of those things, aging populations. And and, and we need a leader that is going to uh, be able to speak to people's needs of affordability and opportunity. And that's what I am all about. Uh, I've been a cabinet minister. I've, I've worked in business, run businesses. And I believe I bring the background and the experience that Ontario needs and that the Ontario Liberal Party needs to win the next election. What's it going to take to get you back into power or even, you know, back into opposition? We have to reconnect our party and build the party from the bottom up, not the top down. I set a great big, bold goal. Should I be elected leader? 
in March of 2020, we will be knocking on 1 million doors to get our party ready for 2022. Your experience, of course, is with the Wynn government, which was really, I don't know if tainted is the right word, but there were a lot of problems with that government. So how do you get rid of that association? Well, you know, there are things that we did in government that, that were quite good. We are the the, the party that, uh, you know, certainly introduced um, things, things like full-day kindergarten. We got the graduation rates up to all the way to 86.5%. My proposal is to get that up to 90% to make sure that we have the workforce of the future and that we maintain a strong growth in Ontario um, so that we can afford the things that are really important to people, like their health care home care, and uh, and that we have cities and towns in this province that have thriving, growing economies. That is what I'm focused on. And the experience I bring, yes, I've, I've certainly held three cabinet positions, and that's going to help in leading the province. But I also bring outside experience as well. I've led organizations, nonprofit and private sector. And I believe that that is something that uh, our Liberal voters and Ontario voters will will connect with. You've been speaking about the Doug Ford government, and they have definitely encountered some turbulence. But there there's some indication that after the last bit of retooling, they might be getting back on track. How do you deal with that? Well, I can say that, you know, they certainly um, got off to a, a very, very slow start. Uh, you know, almost, you know, more than half of the cabinet was changed in the last shuffle. And uh, and now we've shut down the government uh, in terms of the legislature for five whole months until after the federal election. Uh, there's business that we need to be doing. I certainly uh, know that I, I tabled a private mem- member's bill on the last day, uh, sitting day that we had. That is really important. It's about community safety and, uh, and making sure that we uh, keep our, our, our communities as safe as possible and get rid of gun violence. These are very important uh, uh, things that we need to do in the legislature, and we need to get to work. So, uh, you know, I I can't speak to um, why why Doug Ford felt that it's not important to to roll up our sleeves and get to work right after Labor Day, like the rest of the world is doing. But I do know that you know people want uh, a government in place that is going to look after the things that are, are really important to them, and that's their health care, that's their education, and making sure that Ontario has a strong economy. Uh, that's what I'm proposing as the uh, future leader of the Liberal Party, and, um, and that's what I'm going to be focused on in the next six months. MPP Mitzi Hunter running for the leadership of the Ontario Liberals. I'm Jane Brown. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Suzanne in Oakville phoned to say she thinks she has the answer to reverse gun crime. To get rid of the illegal guns that are in possession of who I, whom I would refer to as thugs is do a blitz, an absolute blitz. Get the necessary warrants, enter these complexes, go through each and every unit, and seize the guns. Daryl in Toronto says the Conservatives are doing the same thing as the Liberals when it comes to the SNC-Lavalin affair. While everyone's piling on with this, both media and conservatives, and they talk about, uh, you know, uh, the interference and how this is all about to get votes for the election. 
to me, that's exactly what the conservatives are doing, too. There's no difference. They're just looking to, you know, use this to get votes. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were great calls, as always, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Camille in Scarborough, who is happy with the home she purchased way back when she was a young bride. I've only been in my house for 52 years. It's the only house I've ever owned. Wow. When my children were planning on getting married and got married, um, we made a basement apartment for them. They each went down there, saved enough money for a down payment. They um, went, uh, moved out, and then now I'm by myself in the house. I find the prices for rent and for condo fees and everything like that is just too high. And I'm hoping to hang on to my house so that my grandchildren, I mean, my grandson's only, oldest one is only 18, uh, but if they in seven years, years or whatever, he's looking to get married and he needs a place to live, he can come in there and save for a house. So that's my plan. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next week when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer.